Monday. It's March 23rd. And the word of the day is kind, which means all the cows collectively, making it the only plural noun that doesn't share any letters with its singular form. Huh. Used not quite correctly in a sentence, Phil Rizzuto was famous for decades of holy kind as a Yankees broadcaster. Or, if it wasn't for crossword puzzles, the word kind would have died off long ago. I'm no illusions. I'm Heath Enright, and broadcasting, delayed from America's far center, we are the Skeptocrats. On episode 9, Benjamin Netanyahu will prove that things with Yahoo in their name have a habit of sticking around long after they've outlived their usefulness. <laughs> Marco Rubio learns that the internet isn't a real place. Or a series of tubes. Nope. We'll be shocked, shocked to find out that financial malfeasance is going on in Congress. <laughs> and nuclear proliferation is no longer a problem after Ted Cruz finds very few warheads in New Hampshire. But first, the Duo Tribe. When it comes to matters of economic policy, regardless of what the evidence suggests and regardless of what policy is theoretically ideal, the game of politics in this country always manages to get in the way and guarantees there'll be a set of Democrat talking points and a set of Republican talking points that heavily conflict. And far too often, this occurs when honest analysis of the data shows a very clear black or white answer to these questions overwhelmingly agreed upon by experts in the field. Yeah, this is perhaps best exemplified by the famous anecdote of Harry Truman, who got so sick of hearing economists say, on the one hand, X, but on the other hand, Y, <laughs> right. that he famously asked them to send him some one-armed economists. <laughs> right. So in order to help us combat this stupid and damaging phenomenon, the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago organized an advisory board of expert economists from both sides of the aisle called the Economic Experts Panel, or EEP. And it turns out they find a right and wrong answer to way more questions than the partisan media spins would lead you to believe. We'd like to explore a few of those questions, as discussed in a source article by Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers at Bloomberg.com. And, spoiler alert, one of the two major parties will probably look stupid unless they tie. And... They did not talk. No, unfortunately. Now, the people who are shown to be wrong by this consensus have a counter-argument, of course. They like to point out that the EEP is entirely made up of university economists, not privately employed economists. So, full disclosure, none of the people whose opinions are being represented here are being paid to promote an ideology irrespective of the evidence. And right. Apparently, that's a flaw. So with that caveat, we're going to start with a simple question. And to be fair, both parties failed on this topic. The question is, does the POTUS control gas prices? All right. I'll start by saying, no, he absolutely does not. You could finish and there, too. On this this they won't let you. It should be brutally obvious to anyone with even a tiny understanding of how buying and selling stuff right. works. Market forces, things like supply and demand, almost entirely determine the price for almost everything. That very much includes oil and gas, which are traded during every microsecond of every day on open exchanges. The EEP unanimously agrees on this. It's the market forces, not so much the president. Right. And I'm sure that the, the economic and energy policies of the president might factor in here and there in the long-term trends. But trying to parse that out in the moment is like trying to figure out which African butterfly to blame for the shitty weather in New York. <laughs> right. So despite this indisputable fact... George W. was blamed by liberal opponents like Nancy Pelosi for high gas prices around 2007. And then more recently, we saw plenty of conservative commentators blasting Obama for the spike in gas prices around 2010. But now those prices are especially low, yet no compliments from those people. It's weird. No. Apparently, they all learned about 
price discovery in markets just in time to not praise their political opponents. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't worry. I'm sure they'll dutifully forget it again once we're back over three bucks a gallon. <laughs> now, we understand the topic of macroeconomic policy is extremely fucking dry, so we're going to try to sum up these questions with a blowjob analogy to make them a little easier to swallow. Of course we are. Think of it like this. Obama, Bush Jr., Clinton, and Bush Sr. could throw a bukkake blowjob party for OPEC every day on the White House lawn, <laughs> and oil prices would still be controlled by the trading behavior of groups like Goldman Sachs far more than the POTUS. It would still be an awesome campaign promise, though. <laughs> we it? will blow OPEC. And speaking of Obama's ability to get it up. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah that, that does thrust us right into the, the next, next question, question doesn't it? Um, and that question would be, was the stimulus package of 2009 successful? All right, so quick background. Obama came into office amidst our worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. According to most economists and a majority of Congress at the time, an injection of money and jobs was needed to prevent complete disaster. So that's what we did. This was a very simple application of Keynesian economics. In general terms, that's the macroeconomic principle that suggests severe recessions and the related decrease in private sector demand can be mitigated by increasing public sector spending. The New Deal is a perfect example of this theory in action. And, really and, well. and if you think about it, when you strip away the jargon, the theory behind this is basically hire some of those unemployed people and there will be more employment. <laughs> so you know, it's not like <laughs> economists have untied the Gordian knot here or anything, but when it comes to really simple shit, economists generally agree. Yes, they do. On this issue, the EEP has twice been polled, once in 2012 and once last year. And both times, more than 90% of the expert economists agreed that the stimulus package succeeded in its stated purpose of reducing unemployment. They likely came to this conclusion by measuring unemployment. So pretty huh. simple stuff. <laughs> Final verdict, the stimulus package was successful with the majority of experts believing the benefits outweigh the costs. In blowjob terms, more jobs, faster growth, less mouths to feed. And while you chew on that conundrum or gargle on whatever you would do with that one. We're going to move on to the next question, which is, do tax cuts pay for themselves? No, they do not. Nope. When asked if tax cuts for the wealthy will pay for themselves, zero of the economists on the EEP said yes. Nonetheless, the new tax plan proposed by GOP Senators Marco Rubio and Mike Lee does exactly that, including a cut on the corporate tax rate and complete removal of the capital gains tax. This amounts to multiple trillions of dollars in lost revenue over the next decade that goes to rich people instead of the public coffers. And once those wealthy people get tired of all the extra blowjobs they can buy, the jizz trickles down to everyone else, I guess. That's the theory. <laughs> Apparently. Now, you may be noticing a unifying thread to these last few issues, which brings us to our ultimate question. And I feel like there should be a drum roll here, but not so much that I actually want one. That was me. Does supply-side economics work? And once again, the answer is no. And we have decades and decades of evidence to check on this. Does reducing taxation on the wealthy help decrease unemployment? No. Nope. Do these sort of tax cuts stimulate the economy by encouraging rich people to spend and invest more? Enough to pay for the lost revenue? No. Nope. Does increasing wealth disparity decrease wealth disparity? No, of fucking course not. How would that help anybody? Right, and, and it's worth pointing out to the listeners here that the consensus on this one among economists is greater than the consensus of climatologists on global warming. Right, so not that it should be difficult to understand large consensus among experts, but let's try the blowjob analogy thing one more time. Please. Supply-side economics basically boils down to 
wealthy people convincing everyone else to keep blowing them, and then after they come on our face and take a quick nap, they'll promise to eventually blow us back. Even though they clearly lied about this every other time they made this promise in history, and the nap lasted eight hours, and they had a headache, and then they had a dentist appointment. Personally, <laughs> I'd prefer to just set up universal blowjobs for everyone right now, there directly. You, that's a campaign promise. I love a duo try with a happy ending. When the historians of the future speak of the great American resurgence, they'll no doubt mark its birth as last week's announcement that we can all relax as the Donald will take it from here. <laughs> I feel much That's better. right. Yet again, Donald Trump has officially announced his candidacy for president in 2016, and the news media has dutifully informed us of said announcement with much fanfare. Because let's face it, I, they're in essentially the same business we're in, and bombastic lunatics with microphones are good business. <laughs> but it does put us in a strange, bizarro media realm where reporters are obligated to pretend that Donald Trump is a real presidential candidate. And right. because she's yet to formally announce, they also have to officially pretend that Hillary Clinton isn't. So to help our listeners around the world understand how we got there, we'd like to take a minute to explain the life cycle of an American presidential candidacy. All right. So tell us, when does the life of a candidacy begin? Conception, Noah. That's very official. Sounds controversial. So uh, what does it take to be president? Well, unlike all other important jobs, there aren't any real qualifications for being president other than being at least 35 years old and not being a foreigner, except for Obama. All right. Well, yeah, I guess uh, no educational requirements or anything, but uh, there are some unofficial requirements, right? Uh, so far, just being able to pee standing up and having enough money to buy a space yacht. That's pretty much gotcha. it. Gotcha. Okay. So assuming you're old enough, you weren't raised by barbarians, you've got a lot of money and a penis, what's next? Well, if you're serious about running, the process starts years before the actual election. So the first thing a candidate has to do is raise more money. And how are they going to manage that? Through a political action committee. All right. So we've got our political action committee taking in money. What's next? You'll need to raise a lot more money. W wasn't that the uh, previous step? And also a prerequisite, yes. But you'll still need a lot more than that. You'll, you'll need an exploratory committee for that. Okay, right. Now, they test the viability of your candidacy, correct? Well, uh, yeah, that's part of the job, sure. But the exploratory committee also, they're going to help you get important endorsements, wealthy donors, and they help you craft your message. So your, to, your platform? Well, more like your message to wealthy donors about why they should give you money. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So now we've got our political action committee and our exploratory committee hard at work. What's the next step? That would be fundraising. You've got to be kidding me. No. Okay. But how about after the fundraising? <laughs> there is no after the fundraising. This okay, but American I mean, election. But there are steps that don't involve raising money, aren't there? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Reporting how much money you raised, for example. Well, I mean stuff not related to money. <laughs> well, not really. No. Well, well I, I guess you have to file some paperwork here and there. So, but, I mean, but what about campaigning? You know, making speeches and stuff. Yeah, that's that's a good way to kill time between fundraiser dinners. I guess. Sure. Yeah. But, Find a stump. but that stuff also matters, right? Not particularly. No. Look, really, more than eighty percent of American elections are won by the candidate that spends the most. And for example, during the twenty twelve election, you needed almost four billion dollars to be even competitive. That's wow. that's basically twelve fifty for every man, woman, and child in this country. If you have Get every American to give me 12 bucks on your to-do list. You don't have time for any of this petty policy bullshit. If you got money, you can outsource it. But I, Okay, but I get your point, but there are like debates and stuff. I mean, there's other stuff that you have to do. Well, you got to pick out your tie. You got to pop some boils along the way, too. But we're only concerned with the things that directly affect your candidacy. I see. 
I'm, I'm very depressed. You absolutely should be. Joining me for headlines tonight is fellow skeptic rat, No Illusions. Noah, do you have any kind, sympathetic words for the now bankrupt Radio Shack? It was either that or more wishes. I think I made the right choice. <laughs> so before we get to our first headline, let's check in with Twitter and see what Chris Hardwick's been doing to crowdsource jokes for his show. What a hack, right? Who uses Twitter to get jokes? <laughs> Trending this week was hashtag adorable illnesses. Like puppy rickets, I guess. Would you like to play or pass? Well, I... My testicular elephantiasis is adorable when I draw smiley faces on him, but I don't think that's what you're what you're looking for exactly. <laughs> well, no, no, not exactly. I think it's more along the lines of like uh, Linus and Luciliac's disease. That's what all right. I got you. Okay, so like um, plaid cow disease. <laughs> that would be That'd be fucking adorable, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and this week's non-random stranger winner, because I may or may not follow her on Twitter, is at Mia Khalifa of Burka porn fame. Who went with his and herpes. Okay. So well played at Mia Khalifa. For you, Mia, it would be worth it. In our lead story tonight from the BB Guns file, Benjamin Netanyahu of the conservative Likud party retained his position as prime minister of Israel and definitely not Palestine last week, narrowly defeating Isaac Herzog of the center-left Zionist Union party. Does anybody else get the feeling like Australia and Israel are just trying to make us feel better about reelecting George W.? <laughs> Like, wouldn't want you get interrupted mid-fucking everything up. You, we wouldn't want all our shit only half fucked up. Why don't you take another term? <laughs> right. So in order to attract votes at the last second, Netanyahu explained to Israel's right wing that he was clearly lying this whole time about pursuing a peaceful two-state solution in the region. Uh -huh. Then when he got a phone call from the White House on Thursday following the victory, he explained that he was clearly lying about how he was lying that whole time and assured Obama <laughs> there's no reason not to trust his word about promises of diplomacy with yeah. Palestine and his plans to let them maybe try to exist again. Well, I, I mean, you can't triple stamp a double stamp, so he must be telling the truth about lying about lying. <laughs> of course he Obviously. is. Don't be ridiculous. According to Bnets, he had no choice but to change his position for a few days there after he heard from a friend of a friend that Palestine was making out with Hamas under the bleachers earlier that week. Oh, and shit. terrorist organizations that try to take over the Holy Land haven't been cute or funny since about 1947. Not at all. The fact that he barely squeaked out an election victory during that time is just a big coincidence. And I, his explanation was that he didn't mean that there would never be a two-state solution, only that there wouldn't be one while blood still coursed through his veins. Like, it's basically... <laughs> Once the Palestinians promise to calm down and stop saying mean shit for a couple of decades, we can start thinking about peace. That's the Netanyahu doctrine, apparently. Right. So in addition to the phone call with the president, the Beebs also did an interview with Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC on Thursday, further scrambling to distance himself by more than 48 hours from his newest inflammatory campaign statements. Specifically, he tried to explain away allegations of racism and voter suppression after he made remarks suggesting Jewish citizens need to combat the effect of Arab voters who are making their way to the polls, quote, in droves. Wow. According to a passive-aggressive response by Netanyahu, quote, I wasn't trying to suppress the vote. I was calling on our voters to come out. I'm very proud to be the prime minister of all Israel's citizens, end quote. <laughs> He's pro-drove. <laughs> right. He also added that he has several Arab friends that may have voted for him. Well, so. there you go. And it's like, worth pointing out, he's talking about 
20% of the population of the country. That right. is no different than a candidate in the U.S. saying, come on, folks, you need to outvote the Mexicans. Same basic <laughs> thing. And in rock out with your shock out news tonight, third term <laughs> Illinois Congressman Aaron Schock learned last week that congressional ethics investigations end if you resign from Congress. <laughs> So that's exactly what he did. Good strategy. Shock first entered the public eye when stories of his lavish pimp suit of an office <laughs> left a lot of people wondering why the fuck we just reimbursed a third-term congressman for an office Solomon would have found ostentatious. Right. And apparently costs a lot of money for lavish, ostentatious interior decorating to dispel rumors that you're a gay Republican who votes like a homophobe. That's expensive stuff. <laughs> the latest in a series of why the fuck would you Instagram that type scandals for shock here was the revelation that he'd been reimbursed for 170,000 miles on a vehicle that only had 80,000 <laughs> miles on it. So not only did he bill the American taxpayers for every single mile he ever drove for four and a half years, but also he billed us for 90,000 miles he didn't do. That's a trip like equivalent to three and a half laps around Earth. Or a, a, like a third of the way to the moon that he overcharged us by that. And during those road trips, he was listening to the proclaimers, I would walk 500 miles on repeat. And I'm pretty sure we got billed for those miles, <laughs> right, too. Right. Now, citing the fact that everybody's bothering him all about this money he stole and it's distracting him from doing his job as a congressman, he stepped down last Tuesday or announced that he'd step down on the 31st. Joining us with more on this story is roving reporter Lucinda Lusions. Lucinda, where are you now? Patagonia, Heath. Where? It's a sparsely populated region of South America. Yeah, Shia- yeah I, know, I, know, I know where Patagonia is, but what the hell are you doing there? Uh, well, mileage reimbursements, Heath. Did you know about this shit? 8,919 miles at 56 cents a mile? That's almost five grand. Boom. Wait, you drove to Patagonia? Kept going south until I ran out of road, Heath. I had to caulk the car to get over the canal way harder than Oregon Trail made it out to be. Uh, Lucinda, I hate to break it to you, but we don't reimburse for mileage. We don't? Our budget for this show is 45 bucks an episode, so no. Oh, well, that's okay. I'll, I'll bill it to the taxpayers. So I'm taking this vacation on their dime, suckers. You can't do that if you don't work for the government. Well, what about the... I still get reimbursed for the private jets, though, right? No, wait. Private jets? As in plural, multiple jets? I chartered two and made them race. Why would you do that? (laughs) Because the only other option was to not do that. How much did that cost you? Uh, About nine grand an hour per plane, plus redecorating costs. Wait, redecorating costs on the the planes? Yeah, yeah, we did it in post-Edwardian British aristocrat. The plane. Awesome. You remodeled the plane around Downton Abbey. Well, the other one we did in 16th century Japanese, Heath. Why? Is that really any more ostentatious than doing it to a congressional office? Uh, no, I guess not really. So think of this as my way of following in Aaron Schock's footsteps. But you do realize the guy who did that is under... Federal investigation and had to resign from office, right? That didn't really work out for him. And now he gets a six-figure salary as a lobbyist slash fundraiser for the GOP. Pretty solid promotion, if you ask me. What? Very good point. So what are you trying to say? Bring on the ethics investigations, bitches. All right. Thank you, Lucinda. And in no evidence of hell getting hotter news tonight. Ted Cruz is still the U.S. Senator in charge of science. He's still a potential GOP presidential candidate. He might announce on fucking Monday. And he still claims to believe that global climate change is a hoax perpetrated by all the scientists. Yes. (laughs) After heading to New Hampshire to investigate the 
cold, icy, spherical thing presented as evidence of global colding by Senator James Inhofe, Cruz was likewise duped by the existence of seasons, and he continues to support a platform of corporate-backed anti-science. You know, I saw some atmospheric data the other day that showed that the only place on Earth that was abnormally cold this winter was the east coast of the United States. Every <laughs> other spot on the planet was warmer than usual. Like Texas, for example. Isn't that yeah, what it is? right? Cruz Bourgeois appeared on a recent episode of <laughs> comedic talk show Late Night with Seth Myers, during which he made things so much worse by talking. He could have minded. Here's it. a few of the words from the GOP's favorite token Latino, now that Mitt Romney's been moved to the PUP list. Quote, I just came back from New Hampshire where there's snow and ice everywhere. You remember how it used to be called global warming and then magically the theory changed to climate change? The reason is it wasn't warming, but the computer models say it is, except the satellites show it's not. End quote. The senator in charge of NASA and the environment, ladies and gentlemen. Keep it going for Ted Cruz. Fuck. But see, when he says shit like that, he's exposing the missing scale on his underbelly. Like, I'd love to see an interview lock him in on that shit. Okay, Teddy boy. So you're saying that you're making this judgment based on the data, right? So if I can prove that you're wrong about the data, you'll change your opinion, right? Here's some. I'd love to see him, (laughs) the stumbling jabberwocky he'd mutter after you asked him that. (laughs) <laughs> That'd be fantastic to watch, absolutely. So, writing on his bad astronomy blog at slate.com, oh, so good. astronomer, <laughs> author, and professional ignorance wrangler Phil Plate thoroughly debunks these claims point by point in an article entitled, Ted Cruz Goes Full Orwell. <laughs> in very short order, Plate explains and graphically illustrates how mountains of data contradict nearly every word of Cruz's remarks except for, like, the and pronouns. <laughs> and he closes by tying in the Orwell reference regarding the senator's claim that the term global warming is somehow inaccurate. Quote, that is at the level of weapons-grade irony. The idea to start calling it climate change came from a Republican strategist in an effort to make it seem less threatening. Right. By saying that, Cruz has gone full Orwell. His own party made that change in phrase, but he's accusing scientists of doing it. End quote. Phil Plate is such a badass. I love that fucking article, too. And in grab your red bick and double flick for porn, porn, porn news tonight. Senator Marco Rubio recently published an op-ed about his opposition to net neutrality in Politico magazine, for which he received a letter grade of F from former high school English teacher and current congressman from California, Mark Takano, who has publicly redlined the column, pointing out numerous errors in both writing style and, of course, content. Quite awesome. And perhaps his most egregious error was to argue that if we could just get rid of net neutrality, we would have net neutrality. (laughs) That so, like, that's his argument. His, his argument is that the only way to make sure that the mom and pop internet businesses can compete with the big boys is by eliminating net right. neutrality. So, aside from mixed metaphors, lack of brevity, improper citing of sources, and incorrectly using web and internet as synonyms, Takano also pointed out some gross hypocrisy and a fundamental misunderstanding of the internet's origin. Let's start with the hypocrisy part. Sure. Rubio claims the FCC is not a valid regulatory body because its commissioners are unelected officials. However, those commissioners must be approved by the Senate, and Rubio personally voted to approve all five of them. Right. Takano also noted that Rubio should probably disclose the fact that he received about 
$50,000 in campaign donations from ISPs and broadband providers that obviously want to end net neutrality so they can make larger profits. And, and I mean, talk about the third rail of modern politics. Being in favor of <laughs> net neutrality is almost as bipartisan as being against raping puppies. Almost. Like over 80% of Americans are against him on this, and that holds true regardless of race, age, income level, education level, and political party affiliation. <laughs> More than 80% of people in all the demographics are against Rubio on this, whose job is to represent the people, by the way. So in addition to not being a scientist, he's clearly also not a mathematician or a viable presidential candidate. I hope not. So moving on to the fundamental misunderstanding part. Oh, yes. Rubio at one point claims the best part of the Internet is, quote, the historic free market forces underlying it. End quote. First of all, that's stupid. It's porn. Definitely Obviously, the it's best porn. part. More importantly, though, the internet is a publicly funded government project yes. that couldn't possibly have existed as the result of market forces. Therefore, it's very clearly a public good, and Tanaka explains that net neutrality, quote, ensures that the public maintains control of it instead of handing it over to large corporations, end quote. All that being said... I would have liked to think the porn thing was enough to convince everyone. Without <laughs> net neutrality, right. we're all back to jerking off to analog magazines. Fuck that. A lot of you don't know how bad that was. A lot of you kids, you never had to finish up before the crotch portion of the picture loaded. But let me tell you, it was as bad as it sounds. Seriously, Marco, you start fucking around with people's porn download speeds and you might awake the sleeping giant. Yeah, and it, he's going to want to get rid of his morning wood somehow. Right. So best case scenario for Rubio, he's getting a golden shower from a giant. And from the Best homeopathetic case. file tonight, the Canadian <laughs> consumer advocacy show Marketplace ran a recent expose demonstrating just how easy it is to get the Canadian government to officially endorse snake oil. Damn, During he's... the inve yeah, right? During the investigative report, they demonstrated that in order to be approved as safe and effective by Health Canada, one need provide no evidence that the drug A is safe, B is effective, or C exists. <laughs> right. Basically they took distillates of hydrogen hydroxide left over after cleaning off the bottom of a Zamboni, put them in a glass to help you swallow a sugar pill. That's, that's, that's much it, it exactly. Marketplace reporters made up an imaginary medicine called Nidon. <laughs> And it's just a, to underscore the horrible danger fake. of this shit, right? They claimed it was effective as, at reducing fever in children. And in lieu of scientific evidence, they submitted a photocopy of a page from a 1902 homeopathic reference book of ingredients. <laughs> and according to Health Canada, that's good enough to be approved as safe and effective for reducing fever. Wow. Not exactly a condition you want to treat with witchcraft. Yeah. Might as well tie a cowbell around the kid's neck, not... As effective as you might Recent think. Recent review said we needed more cowbell. <laughs> it's worth noting that there's no requirement that these remedies carry labeling that says this isn't real medicine or this medicine is intended for entertainment purposes only or anything <laughs> like that. It's sold in drugstores often right next to the real shit. Health Canada defends their indefensible standards by explaining that the point of licensing alternative medicine is to offer Canadians more choices when it comes to health care. Oh, After all, who is the great. government to infringe on one's right to accidentally buy ineffective medicine for their children? Fantastic. <sighs> and in what smells like shoe polish news tonight, <laughs> Elk City, Oklahoma mayoral candidate, cross-dressing hairstylist, and white guy who thinks blackface is funny, Bill Helton, is scrambling to make public apologies after a video recently surfaced in which he performs a drag queen stage act in blackface as a character he claims isn't racist at all, which he named, no bullshit, polyester cotton. In case you were wondering, that's cotton with just the one K. Oh, blackface. 
confident that the mayor thing isn't going to work out for him, we put our team of independently contracted Guatemalan refugees to the task of brainstorming names for Bill Helton's Oklahoman racist cross-dressing burlesque musical variety hour. <laughs> Indeed we did. And this week from Guatco, they brought us five ideas, starting with... Buffalo Bill Helton in Sewing Up the Confederate Drag Pole. Oh, nice. They also had Brother Son Sister Poon. Black and white and bread all over. Uh (laughs) Also, Maple Beef Drag, Squat Joplin, and Sit on My Blackface. Nice. Moving on, they had (laughs) Hillbilly Holiday's Strange Fruit. Rafter Midnight, we're going to let it all hang out. And finally, they had Clan Morrison is... Brown-eyed man-girl. It's a marvelous white for a coon dance. Oh, wow. Well, I guess the good news is we already knew we couldn't get elected mayor before we did this <laughs> this bit, so we're we're okay. And that's going to do it for Episode 9. Thanks to No Illusions for his hyper-Cartesian levels of radical doubt. Quite well. Thanks to his lovely wife, Lucinda, for road-tripping to Mortar and Back with Aaron Schock. And thanks to all the listeners that liked us on Facebook, followed us on Twitter, and sent us feedback on the other various internets. Please keep doing that, please keep listening, and please keep telling your friends. And if you find the naive stupidity of our giving away a free show business model to be oddly charming, please feel free to send us gifts of money at our donation page at patreon.com slash skeptocrat. Just like Matthew, Eric, Scott, John, Debbie, and Joel, whose genitals can be used as a master key for any John Deere tractor. And also the AllSpark, I'm told. And whether or not you're feeling financially benevolent like those fine people, if you enjoyed our brand of whimsy and you'd like to hear more unsolicited dick jokes free of charge, check out our podcast award-nominated sister show, The Scathing Atheist, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or directly from scathingatheist.com. Fans of the show can vote for us once a day at podcastawards.com through March 24th at 9 p.m. Eastern. That's tomorrow. That's almost there. We just have one last thing. Let's compliment that penist. Special thanks to the criminal mastermind of felonious funk, Ryan Slotnick of Evil Drafts on Mars. He is the creator of the virtuosic musical stylings you heard today, which were used with his permission. You should definitely check him out using the links we'll provide or by Googling the only band called Evil Drafts on Mars. Until next week, catchphrase sign-off. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. Brum, 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 brum.